Well, good morning. Good to see you. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word together. Our Father in heaven, we ask uh, that you'd help us, Lord, that as uh, you bring uh, the heat and the light of the sun shining down on us, that you would bring the heat and the light of your word into our hearts. Uh, please speak to us, and in your speaking, please bring life. And in bringing life, please bring glory to your great name, we ask. We ask for your help. Amen. Super. Uh, so Mark tells me that one of his colleagues, a number of his colleagues have been saying to him this week, I hope Sunday goes well. Um, I assume they're talking about the leading of the service today. That must be what they're talking about, doesn't it? A Sunday has arrived, hasn't it? Sunday is here. And this evening's worship service will be held at Church Wembley. It's going to be live streamed for those who can't attend in person. Um, there we go. Football mania. It has descended, hasn't it? 55 years since England were in the final of a major competi football competition, that is. Um, and it's happened. It's come. Here we are. Um, apparently, there'll be 30 million people watching it live tonight. Uh, more than those who were watching the Prime Minister's coronavirus announcement in May 2020. Um, it's here. The hopes and the fears of all the years are met in the tonight, we heard this week, on the hallowed turf. There we go. I don't know if you were watching the game on Wednesday, but it was something else, wasn't it? Um, when England won the semi-final, the passion that erupted, it means everything. Uh, a guy called Gavin has told the BBC, what a wonderful time to be alive. In 2021, with a global pandemic tearing the world apart, what a wonderful time it is to be alive, isn't it? He says, it was one of the best days of my life. It was just very, very, very special. Just one of the moments you think, I will take this to the grave. There we go. Um, that, there's so much good that we can say about sports. So much good we can say about sports, even about football. Uh, so much good. Um, the fun, the drama, the history, the community, uh, working together. Uh, Gareth Southgate as a leader. Um, after they won on Wednesday, Gary Neville said this. He said, he's everything a leader should be, respectful, humble. He tells the truth. Those are great leadership qualities, aren't they? Common grace writ large in that observation. And yet good things easily become God things, don't they? Now, what is it about sport that does that? What is it about kicking around a lump of leather into a net that can become so all-encompassing? What is it? A guy tweeted on Wednesday, he said, I didn't cry when my daughters were born, but I did cry when England beat Denmark. Now, what is it? What is it about sport? Sport isn't even trying. It's not even trying to answer humanity's deepest need, is it? It's not even trying to be redemptive or saving. Now, after the final whistle, Gavin may take the moment to his grave, but the grave will still beckon, unmoved, undaunted, and our hearts will still ache. Now, what is it about sport that draws such intense emotion and devotion? What is it? I think it's this. I think it's that it is a distraction. And maybe a little distraction isn't such a bad thing, but a guy called Carl Truman said this, and I think he's right. He wrote, sport is a distraction from the unbearable truths of our own existence. Our mortality, our finitude, our accountability, it does not deal with humanity's deepest problems. It simply helps us to pretend they're not there. Well, this morning we will try to lift the curtain of the pretense a little. We will look at truths, truths that maybe are unbearable, but hopefully we will see the truth, the one truth that can really bear all. 
Uh, so look with me at Matthew chapter 28. The first thing that we see here is fear in the place of death. Matthew 28. Uh, last week, as we, as we followed through the crucifixion account, we saw the moment of Jesus' death when he releases his spirit and his heart stops beating, his blood ceases to flow. There's, there's no more brain activity. Dead. Uh, the executioners know their work and they do it well. Uh, And we read at that time, Matthew 27, verse 57, evening was approaching. And and for the Jews, evening marked the beginning of the day. Uh, And so that next day was the Sabbath. And so this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, we haven't heard of him before, uh, but he's a rich man, he's a believer. He requests permission to take the body of Jesus and put him into a tomb. They take the corpse, he takes the corpse, he, he wraps up the corpse, t- the corpse tightly in heavy cloths with, with a load of um, spices to stop the smell, uh, and then puts him in the tomb and covers it with a stone. Uh, in, in the morning, the religious leaders request that an armed guard is placed at the tomb until the third day. They want to prevent any nonsense spreading about the rising from the dead. And then it's quiet on the Saturday. And Matthew picks it up. As the sun rises on the Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath, on the third day. We read in verse 1 about Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. A woman who had watched it all. We heard of them in chapter 27, verse 56, watching the crucifixion. Verse 61, sitting opposite the tomb when Jesus gets placed in it and the, the, the stone gets rolled across the entrance. And now we hear how they go. They went to look at the tomb. And that the looking implies reflection. They go to reflect because it's a place of death. It's one of those places where the unbearable truths about our own existence begin to push their way up to the surface. When, when we begin to ask, what is it all about? Now, why am I here? Where am I going? If it all ends in a tomb, what is, what is the sense of everything else? What's the meaning of, of carrying something to the grave if the grave is the destination? And for these women, it hurt, didn't it? They, they loved Jesus, loved him dearly. They'd seen him die horribly. And now he's been taken from them and they're grieving. We don't know if they had much time to look. We don't know if they had much time to reflect. Uh, but verse 2 tells us it was very sudden. As this great drama erupts, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Now this place of death is subject to a a heavenly invasion. An an earthquake, a violent earthquake is appropriate because this heavenly being heralds a reality that shakes everything. There's a happening that happens here that splits the foundations of every man-made understanding of the world. It tears through the distractions. It demands that we face up to what matters most. Now, the angel comes, what's the response? Well, Matthew directs us first to think about the guards. Uh, that Their job, that they're there, their, their whole purpose in being there is to stop anyone moving the stone. That They just didn't expect it would be this someone who would come to move the stone. And they don't offer any resistance, do they? Uh, like the ground shaking with the earthquake, these guards, they shake and they become like dead men. They're so scared, they can't move, they can't speak. Why? What, what, what produces this fear in them? Uh, I reckon there are maybe three things. Uh, the, the first one, I think, is just, it's just the fear of something that you, that you don't know, or something unknown. Uh, they, they, these guards, they're, they're doing their job. 
and they're suddenly confronted with this reality that goes beyond everything they ever knew. They haven't got a category to put it into. The fear of the unknown. And then I think there's fear of great power. Whatever this lightning-clad figure is that comes and confronts them, the guards are utterly powerless. Now, if these guards had any kind of bravado as they stood there with their armor and their, and their guarding, maybe as they see the two women come in, they, they stand up tall because, no, they're guards, aren't they? They're strong. Well, all of that melts like a moth before a furnace as they get exposed as pitifully powerless. They can't do anything. And, and yet I think the greatest cause of their fear is that this angel that comes is pure holiness. His appearance as lightning, his clothes white as snow. It, it echoes Old Testament visions of the, the holiness of God Almighty. Because that's where this angel comes from. He comes from heaven. He comes from the presence of God. He comes bearing about him the atmosphere of blinding purity. And these men are terrified. And more than their fear of the unknown, more than their fear of their own powerlessness, it's the fear of sin in the presence of holiness. It is heaven's presence that petrifies them. I think people can speak dangerously easily about heaven without ever questioning their fitness for it. And without ever wondering if they could survive it. Now we've got to make, make no mistake when we think about heaven, it is happiness. There's an immensity of joy located in heaven that goes beyond any description, but it is purity. And we are not. In the Old Testament, when Isaiah has a, a, a vision of heaven and he sees these heavenly beings, maybe like this one that came down, the, these, these flames of fire circling around, uh, they're circling around the throne of God. These are, are beings that kind of maximize all created holiness. And they roar to each other with voices that shake the earth and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And yet even with the power of their angelic perfection, they must cover their faces before the original uncontained holiness of God. Heaven is happiness and heaven is holy. And these gods are stricken with terror because of sin in the presence of holiness. And we see first in this place of death, heaven invades and there is great fear. Maybe in some ways it shows why all of us find death terrifying. Now, when death is far away, we can maybe speak stoically of it or we can laugh at it. But when we face it, uh, there's a guy called Kyle uh, who thought he was going to die. Just a couple of weeks ago, he was in one of those moments when he thought he was going to die. He was on an airplane, um, and the airplane experienced engine failure. And the, the stewards are running around telling everyone to brace. The pilot comes over saying, we have to prepare for a crash landing. And, and he writes, I never felt so out of control or totally exposed or honestly so scared. And he looked and he saw the passengers crying around him, panicking, gripping, to tight, gripping tightly to loved ones. And he thought, this is it. I'm going to die. It's terrifying. The unknown bit is terrifying. The, the clarity on your own powerlessness to do anything is terrifying. And yet over that horror, over that is, is this idea that it might not be the end. And you might be just a moment away from meeting your maker. And how England fare in the football this evening will probably not mean much to you at that moment. And Matthew starts by directing our attention to the guards. Fear in the place of death. The living become like the dead in the presence of heaven's visitor. 
But our attention doesn't stay there. It quickly moves. And in verse 5, the angel speaks, and we see not fear in the place of death, but hope in the place of death. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. And, And the focus here is on you. You don't need to be afraid. In contrast to the guards, you women, you don't need to fear. The the, the guards fear the unknown. They fear the power. They fear as sinners in the presence of holiness. But these women do not need to fear like that. Why? Well, look what the angel says. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. They've come to contemplate death, to look at the tomb, to look for the crucified. And the angel says, that's why you don't need to be afraid. And, and, and with this, there's a, there's a kind of flood of great fulfillment of what Jesus had said long ago in Matthew chapter 7. He said, the one who seeks, finds. These women come seeking the crucified and the angel says he's not here. The angel isn't saying you're not going to find him. He's not here because he's risen. And I guess in a way we stand in the place of these women as this angel speaks and gives explanation and evidence uh, puts it before them the angel says he's not here that's the fact a a body had been placed in the tomb a stone had covered the entrance the tomb put under guard and now the body is gone fact why well the angel explains he has risen and then the angel invites them to investigate says come and see the place where he lay the angel says come look for yourselves don't just take my word for it come and see He has risen physically, actually, bodily. He he got up from the place of death and he's walked away. This resurrection, it's not an idea or a philosophy or a a good feeling. His heart had stopped and they saw him die and he was wrapped up dead. But now he's not there anymore. He lives. And what does it mean? Well, this is when it gets a bit weird. You, You notice the angel came and rolled away the stone. The the angel is not coming to open the door and let the the, the dead man out. The angel is opening the door to let the witnesses see in. Jesus is gone. The guards are looking, the women are looking, the stone has been rolled away. They don't see someone walk out. The place where he had been placed is empty. You see, this is resurrection. It's not resuscitation. Jesus did not come back to life. He didn't return from the dead. This isn't winding the clock back. This is going forward, racing ahead. This resurrection is new life. It's a kind of life that hasn't been seen before. Jesus has not gone into death and come back. He's gone into death and he's come through. He's emerged on the other side. Now, all of us, I think, we, we all go through life searching for something that's authentic. We want to know reality. We want substance. And we chase it down so many blind alleys and we just get left aching with a kind of self-constructed and flimsy, pretended authenticity. Full of these kind of distractions away from the unbearable truth that we are just shadows and we're fading. And there's eternity that aches in our hearts. Dust is filling our mouths and nothing is real until we look at this morning. In Matthew 28, until we see when this dead man got up and walked through a rock, he didn't need to move the stone. Do you know why? Not because he's a ghost. His body's gone. The women physically clung to him. He was solid. Why didn't he need to move the stone? Because he's more real than the stone. He's more solid. He's more permanent. He's immortality. He is life. He's real. 
But the Son of God had, had come and entered into our situation. He became like us in every way. That means he entered into our fragility. He, he, he came into, into this fleshliness that we know our bodies that are subject to rot and ruin. And there he died in our weakness. But he is raised out of our weakness, raised in power, raised beyond the claim of death. So the angel says to the women, you don't need to be afraid anymore. Now all these sad things, they're, they're coming untrue. And yet what I want us to see as we, as we see this part of Matthew's account of the resurrection, look what Matthew focuses on. Look down at verse 7. Here's the message the women are to tell the disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. That's the message. Jesus has risen and you will see him. And all the profound theological implications of this moment. There's a guy called N.T. Wright. He's written 900 pages on this. You could write so much. You can say so much about it. All of it is condensed in this. You will see him. That's it. Now, who will they see? Now, just, just consider the things that Matthew's shown us as we've journeyed through his account of Jesus' life. Who will they see? Right back at the start, right when he was born, the angel said, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he explained it with another name. He said, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, saved from sins to be with God. And then Jesus began his ministry with the declaration, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Why has the kingdom of heaven come near? Because the king has come. Heaven's king has come to bring heaven's reign. He's come to overturn the brokenness. He's come to take away the emptiness, to, to bring back the loss, to get rid of the wickedness. Heaven's reign is coming. It's breaking in and sorrow and sighing will not stand before it. And we see that demonstrated in his works. He cleanses the leper. Uncleanness cannot stand before him. He heals the centurion's paralyzed servant. He, countless others experience his healing touch as he takes our infirmities and carries our diseases. And he calms the storm and he drives away demons and he forgives sins. The religious leaders can't, can't get their head around it. He says, I, want, I did this because I want you to know that I've got this authority. And he reaches into death and he pulls back a little girl. He has authority over sickness, over nature, over evil, over death, over sin. And he says, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Because the kingdom of heaven has broken into the kingdom of sorrow and sin and sighing. The kingdom of heaven has come because Jesus is here. That's what the disciples had seen. And then he's gone, snuffed out. Hope had begun to dawn, and then night swallowed it back up in that blood-stained, flesh-torn corpse in the tomb. But that wasn't hope gone. That was hope blossoming. He went there on purpose. That was his purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many. His death was the price that was paid, the, the, the price paid to bring his people back from their sins. The, 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 he was paying the entrance price to, to, to get people into the kingdom of heaven. Not to get him into the kingdom of heaven, but for all who come to him to enter on his credit. He came to save his people from their sins. And this saving of the Lord Jesus isn't, it's not just something transactional. Now imagine, um, imagine Susie being taken hostage. And the uh, captors uh, demand a ransom price. 
something crazy, 50 million pounds. And, and her father, he sells everything he has. He crowdfunds, he steals, he begs, he borrows. He, he does everything he can to gather together this great amount. And he raises the money and he pays the ransom and Susie is set free. Susie is saved at that moment, isn't she? The, the, the transaction is the exchange of the money, the paying of the price. And yet isn't the real saving, isn't the real saving, not when the price is paid, but when Susie runs into her father's arms. Isn't that the saving point? No, without the reunion, the saving is not complete. Now, we as Christians talk about being saved a lot. It's right, there's lots for us to say. Uh, but if we stop at the forgiveness of sins or the healing of our diseases or getting to heaven or being free from evil or, or the end of sorrow and sighing, if we stop at those things, we've stopped too short. Because he came to save us from our sins and the saving is Emmanuel, God with us. So when Jesus had risen, he didn't send an angel to say the price has been paid. It has been. He didn't send an angel to say, I've got your tickets for heaven. He sent an angel to say, you will see him. Being saved is to get him. Being saved is to come to him. It's to find rest in him. Yes, he will bestow all of his benefits. But the greatest is to know him. So, so imagine that moment in verse 9 that Matthew tells us. That the angel says to the women, go and tell the women, run to tell. And it says, suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Greetings. So, so it's an every day. It's a good morning. Hiya. That's what he says. Jesus, there he is. Can you imagine these women? They came to look at the tomb and now they find themselves looking at him. That's the glory of the resurrection. It's to be with him. Jesus repeats the message. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Bishop Ryle at the end of the 19th century said those words, my brothers deserve a thousand thoughts. My brothers, these disciples, the last thing we've seen is them abandoning Jesus in his time of need. They're weak, crumbling under the pressure. And he knows it all. And he did it all for them. He doesn't despise them. He knows about their weakness and he says still, come to me. I will give you rest. My brothers, they will see me. Now, people can speak dangerously easily about heaven and yet not seem to realize what it is that makes heaven, heaven. It's, it's not the fact that it is a paradise of perfection, which it is. It's, it's not the fact that there is no sin or sorrow or sickness or pain or death, which there is not. What makes heaven, heaven? Is that there we will be with Jesus. And of course, these events that we read here, they're written for our benefit. Now, Jesus has poured his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He's done it to bring you through that rent veil into the holy of holies. He's done it to bring you even through death itself, not to bring you back from death, but to bring you through to the other side, to bring you to the only place where our souls can be satisfied. He came to save you, and he died to save you, and now he's been raised to save you. And the saving is to see him. And now we see by faith. 
as we read of him in the scriptures, the Spirit opens the eyes of our heart. As we trust on him, we see by faith. But there will come a day when that faith is done and we will see him face to face. As he is, we will look on him. Now we come by faith. But there will be a day when we will come physically and bodily, risen like him. And like these women, we will rush to him and we will grasp hold of him and we will worship him. And we will find sweet rest for our souls. Here is hope in the place of death. Do not be afraid. That's what he says. It's what the angel says. It's what Jesus says. Do not be afraid. Do not fear because of your sin. Why? Because the blood has been shed for its forgiveness. Do not fear because of your weakness. Do not fear because you are stretched and you are worn and you are torn. He said to the weary and the worn, come to me. And do not fear. Because you seek the crucified one. And those who seek, they'll find. But do not be afraid. You will see him. And what now? Now what do we do now? Now, well, where does this leave us as we wait for our faith to become sight? Well, these wonderful women. They worshipped. And they witnessed. That's what they did, isn't it? They worshipped Jesus with great joy. That's how we respond, isn't it? We praise him. We honour him. We, we give thanks to him. We lay down our lives for him. We be glad for him and in him. And that worship beautifully combined with witness. Go and tell. Go and tell what? That he's risen. Jesus has risen and all who seek him will find. You will see him. We'll have more on that next week as we see as Jesus gives the commission to the church. But, but for this week, there's something else in our account that I find deeply troubling. Now, our third thing to see this week is distraction. Now, think again about these guards. So afraid in verse 4. that They shake, then they become like the dead. It's an astonishing experience, isn't it? The curtain gets pulled back and they get confronted with these immense realities. The reality of heaven, the terror of their own sin in the presence of heaven's holiness, the empty tomb. What do they do with that? Well, we see at the end of our passage, as the women are rushing to report the resurrection, so are the guards rushing to report what they've seen. See it in verse 11. While the women were on their way to report, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. What happens next is pretty sickening, isn't it? These, these religious leaders were worried that the disciples might pretend that Jesus' predictions of rising would happen. That's why they put the guard on the tomb. We see it at the end of chapter 27. And now it comes and it's reported to them that something out of this world has happened. And their response is not to go and investigate. They're so fixed in their thinking, they will not consider the possibility that they might have been wrong about Jesus. Sad, isn't it? Isn't it desperately sad when we see the same hardness replicated around us today? People who will not even consider the claims of Jesus. And the religious leaders, they concoct a really flimsy story. Shows how desperate they are, doesn't it? They, 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 they pay a large sum of money. It's like they pay Judas. They're throwing money at the problem. They want the guards to tell the story. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Good story, isn't it? While we were sleeping, 
We saw these disciples come in in the night time. We were able to identify them through our sleeping eyes. And, and even though we saw it happening, we didn't do our job and raise the alarm like we were supposed to do. Silly story. Now, how far will they go to avoid the possibility that they might have got it wrong? And yet the thing I find really troubling is the guards themselves. Think about them. Think about this period of time. It's not long. An hour, a couple of hours maybe. And, and, and they go from being frightened to death because they see an angel to being willing to take a bribe and spread what they know to be false about something that is crying out not to be ignored. You have to think, is, that, is it even realistic? Is it kind of psychologically probable for someone to go for, for, from such terror in the presence of a heavenly agent to be so scared that you become like a dead person and the next moment happy to pretend it never happened? Just get on with the rest of your life as if the tomb wasn't empty. Is it realistic? Well, sadly, I think it is. You know, remember Kyle, I told you about, thinking he was going to die. Everyone on the airplane, they were plunging to their death. And people on the plane were crying and they were panicking. And Kyle's there with his wife. And the, the first thing they did is they say what they've been learning at their church. They said to each other, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in both life and death to God and to Jesus Christ, my Savior. And then he asked her this. He said, did you do anything for God to save you? And she answered, nothing, absolutely nothing. Christ did it all. That's a wonderful thing to remember as you're plunging to your death, isn't it? And if I have any awareness of my moment of death, that's what I want to be saying. But then Kyle turned to the people around him and he said, if we die in the next few minutes, do you know what's going to happen? And he said he started to preach a 30-second sermon. And he said people listened to him. They didn't laugh. They didn't mock. They, it was a serious moment and it mattered. And then he says the plane landed safely. There was celebration, clapping, shouting, crying, calling loved ones. And he said they came off and they had to wait for their replacement plane. And he writes this. The wonder of it was that most passengers didn't seem to care. Did they register what had just happened? Did it not jolt them awake to the precious fragility of life? Phones and headphones came back out quickly. People finished the Netflix shows they had started on the plane or Candy Crush or scrolling through social media. Distractions. No welcome distractions. Anything that will absorb our thoughts, anything that will soak up our emotional energy, anything we can invest our heart in, as long as it repays us with pushing away the deep questions. But whatever the distraction, Netflix, constant streams of messages, uh, being busy, maybe being busy with good things, but even good things can push away the God thing. No sport can do it. However much we care, however much this evening will be remembered for decades to come, However much we will remember where we were on Sunday, the 11th of July, 2021, however much joy or despair pours out from this evening, it doesn't deal with our deepest problems. It only helps us to pretend they're not there. And so as the angel implies, these are guards. These guards have a reason to be afraid because they're not seeking the one who was crucified. Unlike these women, these women whose fear is gathered up into great joy, are these who find the one they are seeking, the saviour of their souls. So we must ask about ourselves, mustn't we? What about you? Now, how easily we get distracted, don't we? We push away the reality of Jesus Christ, even when we've known him for a long time. We suppress the irresistible facts of the resurrection. We live as though he were not raised or as though it did not matter. And then from time to time we have those moments, precious moments, when the curtain is pulled back. 
and we get a flash of reality. And into that flash of reality, then suddenly the phone buzzes again. And the box set needs to be watched and the constant stream of news and information. And it smothers out the real. And our hopes and fears are located in an, in an empty leather ball rather than in an empty tomb. And what do we do with that? What do we do? Well, I think a good place to start is to follow the lead of these wonderful women. We worship and we witness. We practice the discipline of that. We don't have to remove ourselves from life. We can enjoy the football. Let's enjoy it with Jesus, with gratitude to him. And at the end, let's say it. Let's say it to ourselves and say it to him. He is the real. He is the risen. He is the all in all. Let's ask ourselves that great question at the beginning of our yearly reflections. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And we answer that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. Did you do anything for God to save you? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Christ, he did it all. He is all. He is everything. And we will see him. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I pray that you would, you would fill our hearts with the glorious reality that our Savior is risen. We see him by faith and one day we will see him by sight. And may everything else be built on that. Amen.